In a time when TV musical themes were just as important as the scripts themselves, musician and arranger Mike Post found himself at the epicenter of the custom scoring world for television and film. But this didn't happen overnight. Post had paid his dues as a session player, musical director, and tour musician for such artists as Sonny and Cher, Kenny Rogers, and Andy Williams. It was this deep experience, along with compositional talent, that guided one of the most celebrated careers in the music business, allowing him to deliver internationally recognized TV themes, such as Hill Street Blues, The Rockford Files, Chips, The A-Team, Magnum P.I., L.A. Law, and so many others. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Mike Post. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, my pleasure. Welcome. You're best known, obviously, for the recognizable television themes. Uh, but, you know, we want to start out by finding out more about your background as a composer, arranger, and, and as a musician. And thinking back, um, give us an idea when you first became interested in music or how you were inspired to become a musician. You know, um, it's. I have a memory of the first time I sat down at a piano. Uh-huh. Hmm. And I, I think I was five. And um, we lived in up in San Francisco at the time, and and I was born in Berkeley, and yeah. Um, but my aunt and uncle lived down in L.A., and so we were down visiting them, mm-hmm. and they had a piano that was upholstered with white <laughs> with white naga hide. It, had those, it, it was lined in those push pins, you know, that would hold the, the fabric on yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the surface. <laughs> Studs, and and it also had a mirror behind the keyboard, you know, so that that was like really this old-time kind of setup, and I remember sitting down at the at that piano, and my aunt played a little bit, and she said, okay, this is C, and this is F, and that's G, and this is F, and it was sort of like somebody saying, this is red, and that's blue, and or, mm-hmm. you know, let's learn to count your numbers, one, okay. two, three, you know, it was putting... A name on something that I'd already sort of identified, you know, in sure. my head. I'm, oh, that's what that is. <laughs> and and we stay with my aunt, you know, like for maybe four days or something. My aunt and uncle. And so I played every day on this piano, and and you know, by the second day, she she was going, okay, this is how you make a triad. This is C. This uh-huh. is C. This is G. And it just made it was like somebody turning on a light in a dark room, you know, and, and saying, "Here's where the furniture is. Don't run <laughs> into stuff." You know, it it just sort of made sense in that I heard it already, and I had sort of kind of earmarked the way a major triad sounded and the way a minor triad sounded, not knowing, not having a name for anything. Right, right. It was just. Oh, there's that thing, you know. <laughs> oh, there's that other thing, you know. And and so I can remember kind of going, "Oh, that all makes sense now. That's okay. That you know, so that's the first memory I have." And then um we moved down to LA when I was 6, and every time I was around a piano or something I started playing, so my grandmother noticed that. She had a a little spinet in her house and she noticed. So she uh, she was married to, uh, to her second husband at the time, and, and he had a brother who was a concert pianist, and hmm. so my grandmother was real proactive. She called him up and said, hey, i got a kid that seems to have a little bit of talent and uh, as a grandson, and we need a piano. So this guy, he wasn't playing anymore, but he had a little, what they used to call a studio piano, which was an upright, yeah. but right. kind of a small upright, mm-hmm. and uh, he gave it to me. 
and I still have that piano. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I still have that piano, and uh, at any rate, uh, that that's how it all that that's how it all began. And so I I I started taking piano lessons with my grandmother. She she wanted to take from the same teacher. She found mm-hmm. a teacher that she liked named Edith Knox, who was really had a really good reputation in L.A. as a legit uh, uh, piano teacher. Uh-huh. And she was a wonderful woman. She was just so kind and sweet. And yeah. and she, she thought I was talented, but she also thought that it, she she busted me really early on. And she goes, look, you know, the, the good news is that you have a really good musical memory. So we start playing this classical music, and, and you'll read it at first, but right away you've memorized it, so your eyes are looking mm-hmm. at the page, but you're not reading. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. You, you know, and I went, oh, yeah, you're right, you know. So it was always, this, reading was always a struggle. It just, <laughs> I, I don't know whether I'm dyslexic a little bit or, I, you know, or ADHD a little bit or some some kind of something, but uh, uh, it, it was always a struggle. But I, I kept up the lessons with my grandma uh, from... Uh, my sixth year and my seventh year, and then at eight, I wanted to play baseball. So I said, "Look, I can't do all this stuff. I, you know, I, I want to quit taking piano lessons. It's, I don't like practicing that much, and I, you know, blah blah blah." So yeah. I quit the lessons for baseball, but I kept the piano. Wow. So I would honestly play every day. Wow! So, and, so, so it was your aunt and your grandmother that were honing your because your dad was an architect too. So I mean, he he wasn't a musician, right? I mean. No, no, but but you see the the thing about my mother and father, neither one of them play anything, uh-huh. but but they were huge music fans, so there was music constantly going in my house. I okay. mean, and yeah. they were very eclectic. I mean, like really, really eclectic. There was a lot of classical music going, but there was a ton of Dixieland jazz. They loved Dixieland really? jazz. Uh-huh. So you know, I was hearing all this stuff really early. You know, I mean, six, seven, eight. Nine, even before that, I was hearing a lot yeah. of music in the house, right. and um, so I, you know, I, I kept the piano, started playing baseball, but I played honestly. I played every night, at least for a half an hour, forty minutes, and it was always, you know, I was always like playing something I'd heard on the radio or something like this, and they noticed. I mean, my mom and dad were like, you know, he's, he, you know, he's three quarters a weirdo, you know, he's, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's doing some funny stuff. So at any rate, um, I started making up stuff. I just started, you know, well, if, you know, let's see if Fats Domino does that, I'll do this. You know, if Ray Charles does that, I'll do this. You right, know? Right. So it was, I didn't know that I was doing anything out of the ordinary cause I didn't know anything about it. And it, it was a different place and time and a different, you know, kind of, Opportunities were were much less, and and the civilian population, you know, didn't ever think that they could really play anything unless they could really play something. It right. wasn't right. like you could get a rig, you know, you could get Garage Band and horse around and go like, "Hey, I'm a composer," you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had to, you know, it was a different different setup, you know. And so, um, I just did it that way and went through a regular childhood, you know, played. A, you know, a little bit of sports here and there. I played high school football, and you know, and dabbled in this and that, and and then uh, I really then you know the I think that the defining moment was I went in a 
in a teenage nightclub in L.A. when I was like 15 and a half, so right. maybe just before I turned 16, and I saw some guys on stage playing. Uh-huh. And I just went, I can do that. I know exactly <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, I sure. really did. And I, I, I had never really played with anybody. You know, I just kind of picked stuff up off the radio, and I had a yeah. pretty good record collection, you know. Well, speaking of that record collection, Eddie and I were wondering, wanting to know about the the kinds of music that you were listening to and you were into when you were growing up. I mean, were there was there a particular artist or music act that that influenced your own style? Yeah, a, a ton. Um, yeah, all of us start out as fans, right? All, every one of us. I mean, all the guys that do the same thing for a living that I do. Just we, the guys I talk to, you know, they're all the same as me. They, they, they start out as rabid fans, mm-hmm. and then they, the only difference between us and, and the civilians that stay rabid fans, everybody sort of, um, their life is sort of scored with, with music. In other words, they'll, they'll tell you where they were when they heard this, right. you know, where they were when they heard that, or what, Absolutely. who they were in love with when they're, you know. What 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 clothes I was wearing the first time I heard you know revolver blah blah blah. So the only difference between the guys that end up doing it for a living or doing it at a professional level is the degree of obsession. <laughs> you know the the <laughs> degree of. I mean, it's really what it is. It's right. It's just obsession. So you know, I started out being a huge huge Ray Charles fan. Okay. All right, but at the same time, I was really into Bo Diddley, really into Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. really into Fats Domino, mm-hmm. really into Jerry Lee Lewis, okay, and listening to Copeland. Okay, all right. Now, now, a lot of people, you know, may not think that those dots connect, but but they absolutely connect. Mm, interesting. I mean, Copeland was influenced by Dvorak, and Dvorak was basically a legit guy that that made a living taking folk melodies and making symphonies out. Right, right. Okay, so what did Copeland do? Copeland, you know, was a, you know, a Nadia Boulanger guy that, you know, that had had gone through, you know, the whole revolution of serial writing or 12-tone music or whatever you want to call it, you uh-huh. know, of like, hey, okay, we don't have to be so consonant with everything, you know. Right. But, but he was basically highly influenced by Dvorak. So when when I God, the first time I heard, you know, Fanfare or Rodeo or any of that stuff, I went, Oh my God, this is the greatest stuff in the world because it's it sounds like folk music, you know, but it's orchestrated and it's and it's more complicated. And that led me back to Dvorak and Dvorak led me forward to Stravinsky and yeah. so it and at the whole time, you know, I'm rocking and rolling. So I'm I'm listening <laughs> to the to both sides of the street really hard. I mean, really hard. Yep. And and then I'm playing in a rock and roll band from 16 on. So so it it got to the point where, you know, I didn't just want to play C A minor F and G. You know, I really wanted yeah. to. Right. You know, but but I never lost. To this day, I mean, to me. B flat over F to F still sounds good, and oh man, it still sounds good to me. I'm not bored with any of this, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the simplest stuff, you know, I still listening. I'm still listening to the blues, probably every day. Yeah. 
Well, I was thinking about your early career and like post high school, uh, you set out to pursue your career in music playing in like you, like you mentioned a little while ago. Um, you went out to you, you as a fan, you attended some L.A. clubs. And then, of course, you said, I can do that. And I think, you know, you actually started in on the L.A. Uh, club circuit. And I think you even played in a in the house band for a topless club in San Francisco. <laughs> well, it wasn't a topless club at the time. Oh, OK. I, I, it was. Yeah. And when I graduated from high school, almost like minutes after I graduated, uh, the band I was in, Frankie Knight and the Jester, uh-huh. <clears throat> got a, a gig uh-huh. at the Condor Club. Okay. And there was a waitress there uh, named Carol Dodo. And oh, she Carol. danced on, on the piano that I was playing, but she was, <laughs> she was just in a skimpy little costume. It wasn't topless. Or okay. wasn't, she okay. hadn't had silicone <laughs> or any of this jazz. I mean, she be, later became kind of infamous because she... You know, she ended up having these enormous breasts from silicone injections. <laughs> but when I was, you know, when I was playing there and and uh, getting friendly with her, I, I, I was, you know, she, I was 18, she was 24, it was yeah. all cool, you know. And yeah. it, it, But it was before all the topless thing. It, it was just a rock and roll club, and a bunch of really good bands played in that club. Yeah. And, and it was great for me. And the... the um, the band was great. We did, you know, all classic fifties kind of rock stuff because it was '62. You know, I mean, yeah. it was it was it wasn't old music then. So was was Carol the reason they call it Silicon Valley? Uh, <laughs> You're bad. Yeah, right. That's horrible. That's bad. <laughs> that was we, bad. I'm we sorry. Need, we need a symbol right there. A bad symbol. Crash. Yeah, she, well, she was on the cover of Life magazine about really. Maybe, wow. Yeah, maybe five years later, I was like, Holy wow. Moly, yeah. <laughs> Well, part of the question I was going to continue on from there was, you know, when you were starting out, I mean, I'm sure you were really happy to get some some gigs and, and uh, with your band, but looking into the future, you knew you wanted to achieve more. So eventually, you went back to school, right? Exactly right. It, yeah. it, from the Condor Club, what happened was, you know, we're working up there. I'm living with this older gal. I'm, God, you know, you know, I'm just thinking this is the greatest thing in the world. I'm working in. <laughs> And I was making two hundred and like eighty bucks a week, which Holy was cow. huge. Sure. I mean, that was a yeah. lot of money for me in nineteen sixty-two. Have you know sure. playing piano? Sure. And um, I stayed up there about two months, and it was just so much fun. It was just a ball. And on New Year's Day, we played uh, as part of a big show at San Quentin Prison. Okay. And we went back to the gig. And I think, if I remember right, it was like a Sunday night or something. We went back to get, everybody got just smashed. <laughs> so I wake up the next day, you know, January 2nd, with this monstrous hangover. And I looked in the mirror, and I said to myself, I said, you know what? You have played everything that you know a bunch of times. You, from now on, it's, it's all a big repeat. It's all, you just DC'd. You went back to the top of the, of the music because you've done it all with your ears and with buddies, you know, swapping licks and people turning you on to this or that. And, you know, it wasn't like today. The information was hard to get, you know. It was off a record, so you'd pick the, the needle up and put it back. And went, what, did, what did Ray play there? What the hell chord is that? You, know, so <laughs> you couldn't go on the Internet and have somebody show you you know, how B.B. played, you know, right. <laughs> Rock Me Baby. I mean, you, you, right. there weren't any videos. There weren't any, the information was hard to get. And 
for me, the only way to expand was to go back and relearn how to read and get some legitimate, mm-hmm. you know, kind of foundation underneath my feet because I was just all over the place trying to figure out who, who I wanted to try and become, you know, yeah, which, right. which way did I want to go? So I, I, with a hangover, I called my father up on the phone. I said, Hey, <laughs> he goes, Hey, how's it going? I said, well, it's going really good. I said, but you know, I, I, I don't know enough. I don't have enough under me foundation wise. And he goes, okay, I've been sort of waiting for this call. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I said, you know, Playing in the clubs is a lot of fun. I'm living with this older gal. I'm having a ball. Everybody says I'm a really good player. Everybody likes me. You know, I'm, I'm. You know, it's great. But the thing that bugs me is that everybody comes up and says you guys sound just like the radio because we're playing everybody else's hits. And I said, you know, I want to give it a shot to try and be the radio. I want to be on the radio. Yeah, right. You know, with original stuff. I don't want to. I don't want to do this my whole life. I don't want to be playing for people that are drinking in a club and, and more interested in talking to each other than they are to watching what I'm doing. You know? right, exactly. So I, I want to, I want to come home, go to college. And he said, great. He said, give your notice, come on home. Uh, you know, you can, uh, you can go to Valley college, I guess. And I said, yeah, I can. And cause I barely graduated high school as a terrible student. <laughs> and it was true. I mean, it really was true. I just saw always, dreaming about music so you know right and so i came home and i i studied really hard they gave me some books and i i relearned how to read and i relearned a bunch of basic stuff you know and did some bach corrals and did a few things you know that i could get ahead of the curve and i and i i went in and uh and it the good thing is it led me to to a folk group, to forming a folk group in, at Valley College, and 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 the good thing is it gave me, you know, even the I only did one semester there because uh, I got hot as a guitar player right away because I could finger pick and you know, yeah. but it, it did give me a good place to start private lessons from a good a good sort of jumping off point. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about how you dove into session work. And uh, actually, our our correspondent in uh, the Chicago area, Brian Pearson, he has a question that has to do a little bit more with uh, uh, when you were young and you found yourself working with some pretty big names in the industry, namely Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Sonny and Cher. And maybe he wants – Brian wants us uh, to ask whether you can give us a little bit of insight on working with these people. Well, yeah, you know, basically – it wasn't so much the artists um, that got you the work. Mm-hmm. It was either the producers. In my case, you know, I, I started working with Jimmy Bowen. He liked the way I finger picked and liked liked the way I played. And I worked with uh, Gene Page, and I worked with uh, you know most of all a guy named Mike Rubini, who was a pretty big time session player at the time as a piano player. Okay. You know was solid with the Sonny and Chair band because they were just starting. I mean, there wasn't really a Sonny and Chair band, but mm-hmm. but they were recording. They'd done Baby Don't Go, but they hadn't done done I Got You, Babe, or any of that. So he said he he told Harold Batiste, who was the the arranger and the band leader, and he told Sonny, hey, I know this guy that, that plays electric 12-string and finger picks, and he can read, and he's a good player, you know. Um he, he he half lied because I could read a little. You know? mm-hmm. I wasn't Tommy Tedesco, put it that way. 
but but I could read and and I could count and I in those days there weren't many guys that knew folk styles and and had the folky thing down right. that could really play with a band you know and I because I'd been a rock and roller first I was my time was good and you know I could get by as a as a legit session player so that's that's what happened I was I was the twelve string I was the electric twelve string guy for about yeah. a year and a half or two years yeah and. And because I had these folk styles down, and then I, 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 I put my money into instruments right away. So I had, I had a lot of really good instruments, you know, for a kid, and and I was lucky enough to be, you know, probably I would, in all honesty, call myself a third string member of the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. and you know I wasn't. I wasn't Mike Gacy, and I wasn't Ray Pullman, and I wasn't Carol Kay, and I wasn't those guys, and I wasn't Tedesco or anything like that. I had a different little thing I did, but I, you know, I had a good Telecaster, I had a good L5, I had a couple of really good 12 strings, um, and I had the right tools at the right time. Yeah. So you had your arsenal of instruments, and and, and basically you were, you were uh, a called. Uh, um, session player, and, yes. and during yes. the session uh, with with Sonny and Cher. Now you worked on an amazing track of there. You just mentioned "I've Got You, Babe," which right. was a major hit that uh, had you know it, it, everybody remembers that that track. It had a very unusual rhythmic syncopation that was really different from a lot of the tracks at the time. You know, uh, and yeah, well, it was in twelve eight. You know, so yeah. it, it, it it faked like it was a waltz. You know, right? It, yeah. It, it, you know, and and so. Uh, you know, that lick, you know, mm-hmm. I sort of made a living off that lick, kind of the way James Taylor's made a living off of, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, all by myself. McGuinn was, you know, Jim McGuinn was a wonderful 12 string mm-hmm, player, mm-hmm. you know, using a Rickenbacker. And I was just, I had a Gibson 12 string that I put a pickup on. And I also had a, 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 a a Les Paul that had been made into a 12-string, believe it or not. And, really? and it was a gold top, you know, original Les Paul. Sure. And wow. and so I had good instruments. I had a, all the folky licks. I could Travis pick, and I'm, and my time was good. Yeah, right. And, I, and, you know, I could fo- at least follow a chord sheet and read one line, you know. I mean, I, I could read a, enough. And there just weren't a lot of folky guys around at the time, you know, that that really were kind of on time, organized. You know, there was a good friend of mine named David Cohen who was a wonderful player, and, and he had a good career as a guitar player, and he was he was definitely, you know, a good player. And mm-hmm. uh, there was one other guy whose name was, escapes me. I think, it's, I think it was Steve Mann or something like that, but he was pretty crazy and, and not so reliable and not, you know... Mm-hmm. It's funny, on those Sunny and Cher dates, it was Don Peake playing Telecaster. It was guys like Howard Roberts and, and especially Barney Kessel playing rhythm guitar uh-huh. on L5s. Wow. Or, you know, I mean, on, on archtop guitars, because <laughs> all they had was four-track. You know, right. you right. just couldn't, right. wasn't like you could, you know, you had to have everybody in a room together. Right. They used two basses. They used two or three pianos and four or five guitars, and and you know if, on some of those Sunny Chair dates, two drummers, 
mostly one, either Hal or Jimmy or sure. you know, those guys. It, it was a wonderful way to learn. I mean, a, a great way to be part of that era and part of that that scene. Yeah. And uh, you were instrumental in forming uh, the group First Edition. That included, of course, Kenny Rogers, who would go on to become one of uh, the most recognizable voices in well, and in all music, <laughs> not just country. Yeah, right? yeah. How, yeah. How are you yeah, involved but, in the formation of that particular band? <laughs> well, you know, if I really tell the truth, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was really hung up on this guy named Mike Settle. Uh-huh. First of all, what, what, what really happened was this. Uh, here I am, 19 years old. I play on, on these Sunny Chair records. They're huge. I'm starting to get a lot of work. Right. You know, I'm starting to do maybe six, seven, eight a week. Now that's a lot. Sure. You know? I mean, that's, <laughs> like, now, that's not as much as Hal was doing and Joe Osborne and Nectel and all the real frontline first, you know, first call guys, wrecking yeah. crew guys. Right. And, and it wasn't as much as the older studio guys that were doing all the film and television at the time were doing. But for a kid, I mean, I was doing really well. And, you know, I was nervous as hell for the first six months. I mean, God, I'd sit next to Barney Kessel or Howard Roberts or or Don Peake or or Mike Dacey or any of these guys and I'm going, Man, I'm not sure I really belong here. I mean I'm you know, I'm pretty good at some of this, but I mean I am no Tommy Tedesco for God's sakes. And number one, everybody made me feel great. No other musician ever ever made me feel bad. We had such a tight knit group of guys that were all kind to each other. The, the kindest of all was Tommy Tedesco. He helped every guitar player. That's Interesting. cool. I mean, j- unbelievably so. That's cool. And, and and probably the universally single most talented guy I've ever met in my life, you know, Larry Nettle was like one of my best friends and just would, he just was so good at his job and yet so humble and just, God, we're all together here, you know, we're all working and it's and Hal was the same way. I mean, Joe Osborne was the same, absolutely the same way. So, so after six months of sitting there, you know, my natural addiction to uh, accomplishment <laughs> took over. I I started listening, you know, like I worked for a guy named Nick DeCaro and and I worked for Gene Page, two two big arrangers, and I and they were great, really talented. But I found myself sitting in those sessions going. Well, that isn't what the strings ought to be doing. They ought to be doing, you know, I, I started having ideas beyond mm-hmm. 12 mm-hmm. strings or six strings. And uh, and I'm going, man, there's something wrong with you. You know, you should be, <laughs> you know, you should be absolutely, you know, sick with fear. And you're sitting here thinking that you can, do, you know, be the arranger. And so what happened was I, I, I took part of the money that I was making as a session player and I started putting it into and uh, producing my own records, just independently, and then trying to get them placed. Or I, I put money into to trying to get arranging lessons, which I get. I got a lot of you know, like private lessons from really good arrangers, and really, really good composers. And so, what happened was I got really, really lucky. Um, I, I produced a band from Riverside. Uh, that on a tune that uh, Mac Rabernack and I wrote together, or that Mac wrote by himself. We wrote a bunch of tunes together, but this one tune was called The Twilight Zone, and he wrote it himself. And so I produced it on this band, and um, I was friends with Jimmy Bowen because I was working on his sessions, and, and we had been friends for a long time. He was the head of 
A&R for Warner's Reprise, producing Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis. I mean, he was a huge producer. And I went over to his house one day with this acetate of this record I'd produced on the Twilight Zone song. And he said, hey, you know what? I think you can be a record producer. And I said, well, great. That's what I want to do. I want to have the most control over how the music comes out. And he goes, okay, lock up all your guitars. I'll hire you. So that's how the first edition happened. What, what, what happened was I went to work for Bone as a record producer. I said, okay, I'm not going to be a studio guitar player anymore, which was fine with me because I, I, I told him I was going to be, you know, I was going to be arranging all the stuff that I produced. And he goes, well, that's not such a good idea, but whatever you want to do is okay with me. You got a year and a half to make a hit record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I organized was the first edition. And the way I organized it was I had this guy named Mike Settle, who was a great writer, great singer. I was really good friends with Terry Williams. We'd been on, on a couple of folk tours together. And I loved Thelma Camacho. Now, all three of those people at one point in time uh, uh, were in the Christie Minstrels together. Okay. So they all knew each other. They all loved each other. So now we have these three. The nucleus is there because Mike Settles, the writer, great writer. I think that's all we need. And I keep thinking, well, we probably need a, somebody to sing baritone. We need a bottom voice. And I'm like, we look around, look around. Now, they mentioned Kenny Rogers a couple times. I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what does he really bring to the party? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just not such a big fan of his. I knew him from the Christies, but I, I, I kept saying, you know, no, let's get Ken Bassey or somebody like that. You know, finally, time's getting short to make this record. We got the songs all put together. All right, all right, Kenny Rogers, what the hell? You know, it's just, we we need a bass. So now Kenny comes in. We start doing the sessions, and he brings in a song called Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition's In. Right, right. And I love the song. I thought, God, that's really, really tricky and neat. And there's a bunch of, you know, kind of dope and roll sort of music I can do with that that's really cool. And Kenny goes, I want to sing lead on it. And I'm going, oh, shit. <laughs> All right, what the hell, you know. So, show you how smart I am, you know. <laughs> you know, he ends up being one of the, one of the biggest acts that ever hit me. And he knew I, that I wasn't all that, you know, that big a fan of his, you know. So, um, you know, it, it worked out pretty good for him. It worked out pretty good for me, too. So, Well, Jimi Hendrix, actually, Rick, didn't he? Uh, re- Jimi Hendrix had said one time that it was one of his... Uh, famous all-time records or all-time uh, I never theory. heard that no? I, I I never heard that that's very flattering I you know putting all those little acoustic guitar licks backwards right. was kind of a weird thing to do is I think it was the first record where anybody ran the vocals through a uh, an organ Leslie a B3 Leslie Yeah wow. on on the yeah yeah parts <laughs> Yeah exactly yeah. exactly So I did a couple of things you know it was cut on four track and I went four to four once or twice, and I, I put the the two and four out of my Telecaster. I, I I sped the thing up with a VSO really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What condition? What condition was in? I put and then you slow it down. It sounds like the two and four from Godzilla. You know, right, right, right. So I, you know, I I did a bunch of little tricks. That's cool. You know, I mean, the Beatles had run had already run guitars through a Leslie, but nobody had run vocals through a Leslie. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, you know, it was fun, and 
hey, look, that led to classical gas. So what that's can right. I, you know, I mean. And, that's a great segue because I was just going to mention that you won your first Grammy, you know, at a really young age. And I think you were only about 23 years old at the time. And that, correct. of course, was for your arrangement of the Mason Williams classic, Classical Gas. And I just wanted to find out about, you know, your involvement in that, how you connected with Mason on this project. Yeah. And what do you feel, I was going to ask you, what did you bring to that project personally? Well, I'll tell you, you know, you can tell from from what I've said so far about the music that was playing in my house, yeah. the music that I was interested in, why I went back to, to you know, to college to learn to read, and and the private lessons I was in, the, the whole thing that I was, I guess, um, propelled by or motivated by was the idea of, you know, I never went for that bullshit of, oh, by the way, can I cuss? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I never went for that bullshit of like, okay, you know, your skin is black, therefore you're going to play the blues. Your skin is white, therefore you got to play classical music. Right, or right. You're a middle class Jewish kid from the valley, so you got to do this. Or you got to, you know, really? I guess what? You know, I'm, I can't, no, I won't do that. So, so, you know, what happened to me? It was kind of predictable, you know. If I if I got really fortunate, it was kind of predictable because Kenny Rogers and the first edition was managed by um, managers that also managed the Smothers Brothers. The, the Smothers Brothers head writer was a guy named Mason Williams. Right. He was signed to Warner Brothers Records. Warner Records was also the record company that the first edition was signed to. So, you know, I have this big hit on just dropped in now. Joe Smith calls me on the phone and says, hey, through Jimmy Bowen, who I'm working for, it's all through Bowen's production company, and says, hey, listen, would you be interested in producing this writer named Mason Williams, who's a big-time comedy writer on the Smothers Brothers show, and managed by Craig and Fritz? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, you know, let me let me hear his music. So he comes over, and um, I'm listening, okay, I don't particularly love the way the guy sings, but... but <laughs> <laughs> but he's got some interesting stuff. So he, and then he plays me this little tune in A minor on his on his gut string guitar, and I go, "Oh man, that's really good. That's mm. really good." And he says, "Great." He says, "I, you know, uh, I've been thinking about doing this, you know, like with guitar, bass, and drums, and and maybe a, a piano." And I said, "You know, I've been working on a thing, a concept." And he goes, "Well, what, what's the concept?" And I said, "Well, orchestrated rock and roll." And he goes, what? And I said, yeah. I said, this is the perfect song for it. I said, I, we could do this with a really large orchestra. It would be really good. Yeah, and he, and cool. I said, we need a big orchestra for a couple of these other songs of yours that have vocals on them. You know, you want to have big string section and this and that. I said, I, I just got this idea about doing this orchestrated rock and roll thing. I've been working on it a long time. And he goes, well, okay, fine. So I started... You know, I sat down to arrange the thing, and the whole thing's, you know, modal, A minor to G to F to E. And so I called him back up, and I said, you know, we really need a, a middle section. We need a release from this thing, and I've got an idea, you know, to do something that's like a modulation, and, and then we can get back to your to your lick. And yeah. He said, okay, great. You know, you know, go ahead and do whatever you're going to do. So... You know, I came up with this because yeah, I, I 
we used a different kind of French horn called a Wagnerian tuban horn. Okay. And, Interesting. And nobody had ever used that on a hit record before that. <laughs> it was uh, beautiful. Yeah, and it, it just speaks faster. It's somewhere in between a trumpet and a French horn. So, okay. So I come up with this thing, you know, and, and we go to the session, and Mason was cool. He, he had no problem whatsoever. But Tommy Smothers comes up to me at the end of the thing. And, of course, <laughs> you know, admittedly, when I was 23 and a little bit um, not so secure with whether I was any good or not, that's probably when I came on the strongest. Right. Yeah. Everybody is like, hey, I'm in charge. Here's the way it's going to be. Here's how we're going to do it. I yeah. certainly didn't ever come on strong to the other musicians because they were all my friends. But being the first guy that really came from being a studio, music, studio musician to being a producer, it just wasn't ever done. Right. You became an arranger and you stayed an arranger, you know. But <laughs> moving from the you know, room side of the glass to the booth side of the glass. I, I really was the first, you know, one of the, amongst the first guys that had been a, a real studio musician. Some guys were great musicians and then started producing right away, like Quincy, you know, but but they had never really been part of the wrecking crew. They just came into town and were, were doing whatever they were doing. So I, <laughs> Tommy's mother comes up at the end of the session and he goes, you know that 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 thing you did with classical gas, you know, with his with his instrumental song. That's the most overarranged piece of shit I ever heard. And I went, Tommy said that. Yeah, he did. He did. And I said, you know what? There's the door. You know, you got to leave, yeah. or else you're going to get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and so, to his good graces, to to his good, he came back the next day, and he said, I owe you an apology. It's a great record. Wow. Know. And I said, well, thank you very much. Thank you. That's really, really nice. That's that's sweet of you. That's kind of you. Well, it's funny because Tommy was actually, you know, he's a pretty accomplished mu- musician himself. He and Dickie used to do this thing, of course, with uh, yep. he used to play guitar. He's an incredible acoustic bassist. I mean, he really yep. was a musician completely that he didn't really get the recognition that he uh, had. But uh, that's a neat compliment coming from him. Yeah, it is. And, 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 and for a guy that's a big television star yeah. at the time to reverse his... You know, his <laughs> thinking on it after listening to it a couple of times, it really it was nice of him, kind of him. Yes. And, um, you know, so that's the story. You know, that's the story on that. It, I, it wasn't an idea that I had that nobody else had, because at the same time, Jimmy Webb was working on it in a different way. I mean, Jimmy Webb and I were a lot alike about the way we, you know, thought about, you know, using the orchestra with the rhythm section. I mean... Um, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I invented anything or brought anything down from a mountain. I just was, my background led me to like, okay, let's, you know, let's find a way to involve the orchestra in a rock and roll record. Yeah, right. Well, I want to, I want to jump ahead, uh, and not actually too far ahead because, you know, your foray into television came when you were about 24 years old. So this is about a year later, basically. And, right. and and this was, of course, as a musical director for the Andy Williams show. And thinking back to that time and, and, and being, you know, 24, I mean, you were, you were young. I mean, did you feel like you were experienced enough to take on this kind of a gig? And, you know, what pressures were you feeling with being associated with something as high profile as that? You know, I, I probably was too stupid to be scared. <laughs> Yeah, and, <laughs> and and honestly, you guys. I mean, if I tell the, the the real truth, you know, I I I am addicted to accomplishment. I, okay. I especially at that time, I just wanted to s- 
see how far could I push it. Yeah, and right, here right. I am amongst maybe only two or three or four guys at the time that were authentic rock and roll guys, or what we call rock and roll at that point, mm-hmm. that wasn't scared to death of the orchestra. So I had a peculiar sort of skill set. Now, Jimmy Webb had the same, in my opinion, had the same skill set, plus he's one of the greatest songwriters ever born. But Jimmy wasn't, you know, I was really straight in my personal life. I mean, really, really straight. Um, you know, completely reliable. No, you know, not not an hour late, not a half hour late, you know. Never loaded. Never... You know, I wasn't busy, you know, getting high. I was right. busy doing work mm-hmm. and married, kids, you know, just kind of, you know, kind of leading a, a musical life and leading hopefully a creative life, but sort of the way I was raised by an architect, you know, right, kind right. of X over Y. I, also, yeah. I was in the Air National Guard. You know, I, I, I wasn't going to Vietnam. I didn't go to Vietnam, but so my hair wasn't even long, you know, I mean, <laughs> I was, you know, I, I was the perfect guy to be the musical director of the Andy Williams show because what he needed was he needed a young audience and he was singing pretty, you know, middle of the road kind of music at the time and he needed somebody that could help him sing something younger, something that, that skewed younger. Mm-hmm. Yet, he needed an orchestra. Well, yeah. okay, well, you know, who are we going to get? You know, so I was, you know, of all the, the the sort of, you know, choices, you know, I was probably one of the logical choices. Yeah. Reliable, on time, uh, you know, at least, you know, had some track record. Sure. And, and so they went, yeah, let's get this kid. And... So they they hired me and 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 I think they were glad they did. You know, I think I did a really good job for them. And and I, I boy, I learned an absolute. You know, that was my college. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. because I, I I had you know like a forty five piece orchestra every week as a laboratory. That's amazing. You eventually met um, a guy named uh, Pete Carpenter. Yep. And you Before guys. This. Actually, right after classical gas. Okay. Okay. Well, you guys obviously struck up a, a, a relationship that you know lasted you know for several decades, three decades, a couple of decades anyway. And yep. and in 1973, you and Pete collaborated uh, on a TV theme for Stephen Cannell. And, and tell us about this project. Of course, the Rockford Files. Right. Well, you know, Cannell and I had been friends. I'd met Steve Cannell before he'd ever sold a script. Mm-hmm. And um, after. Classical Gas, uh, Mason Williams and, Williams and I didn't see eye to eye on the next record. And so I walked away, and and Joe Smith and Jimmy Bone, I'll never forget this conversation. They got me on the phone the day after this. We had this little blow-up in the studio, and they said, you know, you gotta you got to make peace with this guy or you're going to lose this artist. And I said, well, I'm not losing anything. I said, I'm going to bet... My whole career, I said these exact words. I remember it like it was yesterday. I said, guys, I love you both, especially Bowen. You're my big brother, but I'm not going to do what you say. (laughs) I'm not going to make peace with this guy. I'm going to bet my entire future that you don't ever hear from him again and that you hear from me. 
I'm going to bet everything. Wow. That, that, that he's just not going to last, guys. And I am. And, you know, it was probably stupid as hell, and that turned out to be right, but, but it, but it was <laughs> egotistical. It was stupid. It, you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, when you're 23, 24 years of age and you're, <laughs> and you're scared, you're probably the most dangerous, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't know anything about politics. I didn't know anything about, you know, oh, he's the artist. You got to just, you know, defer and blah, blah, blah. I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I felt that classical gas was every bit as much my record as, as it was his record. And that, you know, I just didn't feel like he was right. And, and I, and I didn't think I'd been treated fairly and I wasn't going to stand for it. And I, you know, so I, so I walked away uh, a year later, um, Joe Smith calls me. He said, well, I guess you were right. He said, how about making a record for me of instrumental music? I said, great. I'd already met this guy, Pete Carpenter, who was my father's age, and just we just got along great. We both thought the same way about music. He was more from the big band jazz side and had a legit composition background. But I had, you know, I had the licks, and so we got together and said, shit, let's join forces on this record. So we uh-huh. wrote a bunch of songs together. I wrote some songs with other players, and Jimmy Gordon, Larry Nectel, and, you know, a number of other guys. But Pete and I wrote most of this. So when Cannell got his first gig as a head writer on a show called Toma, he calls me up and says, man, can you write the music to this show? And I said, well, I've never put music with picture. I don't know anything about yeah. scoring, but I have this really close friend named Pete Carpenter. So I called Pete up, and, and what happened there was Pete said these words. He said, Look, Mike, I'm getting ready to retire. You know, I'm 52 or 3, whatever the hell he was. And he said, you know, I'll do this with you for a couple of years. But, uh, you know, I can't go very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire. And I went, okay. So in the meantime, we've worked together for 18 years and never had an argument, never had an unkind word between us. All of his friends thought that, that you know, he was sort of carrying me, and all of my friends thought I was carrying him, and they were all completely full of shit. We worked as partners. <laughs> I you know, we we had we we never had a contract. We never had an argument. Wow, we just shook amazing. hands, split everything fifty fifty. I don't know who wrote what and it wow. never mattered. That's wow. amazing. Yeah, we had a just a ball together. I mean we had so much fun. Well you and Pete did so much work over the years and it wasn't just the quantity of work, but it was the the quality of the work, mm-hmm. and and it was the just even thinking back. I, I want to go back to Rockford Files for just a second because sure. that song sure. was unique not only because um, of of the the piece that you wrote. I mean, it was such a well known, recognized tune. But this was a theme and a tune that actually crossed over into the Billboard Hot 100. Sure I mean, it was actually charted. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. that's so unusual. I mean, you think about today. I mean, you hardly even hear themes on a lot of shows anymore. I mean, yeah, the theme. Well, yeah. Yeah, you know, hey, nothing's constant except change. And, exactly. And, but that but, that, but, that had to be unique for the time to have a, a song like that that was a theme to a show then cross over into, today it's the opposite, you know? <laughs> right, right. But not really, you know, Mancini had Peter Gunn. Yeah, that's true. Had Mr. Lucky. Um, you know, the theme from Hawaii Five-0 had been a hit sure. record. That's true, that's true. So once in a while it broke through. Yeah, yeah. And, and... When, you know, it was really simple. Steve Cannell was the absolute greatest at saying things in a in English in a non musical way and leading 
me and me and Pete to something musical. And what he said on Rockford Files, he went, you know, he goes, I want you to write a piece of music that captures Garner. And what Garner is in this is he he's he's a hero, but he's a reluctant hero. Yes. So everything is wry. His sense of humor is yeah. wry. His hands on his hip. He's a little southern, but you can't make him for Alabama. It's it's Oklahoma. It's it, it, and he's got this little kind of fuck you attitude about him, and that's that's who Jim is, and that's what this character is. He's been, you know, he's been wrongfully incarcerated for a few years, and now he's out, and he's more interested in his two hundred a day plus expenses than he is of saving the girl. You know, he, he'll get into the fight if he has to, but it's yeah. the last. God, he doesn't want to do this, you know. He, yeah. And and he said, so capture his personality in a piece of music and be highly influenced by the character of Angel that is kind of scammy and, and and always got an angle and always taking an angle. So we sat down, you know, Pete and I, and I, I said, God, let's put together what we do. Let's put together some odd combination of instruments. And I just bought my first mini Moog. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, I got this mini Moog, and it kind of sounds funny on this particular, you know, with a little sort of a yeah. weep to it. And yeah. I said, let's use that as a lead instrument. Wow, that's cool. You know, nobody's done that. And he said, yeah, great. And I said, you know, if it's Southern, nobody's used a dobro scoring. Nobody has used a dobro in scoring. Wow. So I, so he said, great. And I, so he said, all right, let's put together an odd combination. Let's use, let's use two tubing horns and two trombones, but no trumpets. I said, great. And he said, and we'll use woodwinds. And I said, well, look, what about using a harmonica and use them as a woodwind? So <laughs> that, we, that we have four woodwinds, including the harmonica, and we'll get, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there was a wonderful p- player, I mean, the, the best legit harmonica player in town that could kind of play a little bit bluesy. Yeah. And so we got Tommy, and, 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 and he was really the fourth woodwind in all the scoring, but then we'd use him as a, you know, to kind of play blues harp and, 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 some of the other stuff, and it was—it just worked out really unusual and worked out good. The fact that it was a hit record is just yeah. lucky. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Mike. You're, you're describing, the, you know, the instrumentations and the harmonica and the dobro and these instruments. And you know what? As you're describing them, the the, the score is going through my head, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <me too>. yeah <laughs> I remember that part, and I remember yeah. the harmonica with the. Uh, comes, yeah, comes right, in right, right, and right. and you know I, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners can can picture the same thing as you're you're breaking down all the instrumentations and uh, it's just a, a wonderful uh, thing to to hear you breaking it down as to how you collectively designed you know the sound of apart from the composition the sound of uh, yeah, of the right. instruments you know well you know l- listen I got a I got a 13 year old boy now that that's a blazing guitar player really good you know and the other, you know, like four or five months ago, it finally, the light finally went on. You know, we were in the studio together, and I'm, he's got a little band of eighth graders, and, and they're really talented, really good. Mm-hmm. And I, so we're in recording. I wanted to, you know, make my facility available to them and record them for a couple of days just so they could look back on it and see where they were at. And uh, he comes in, and, you know, I've got a lot of guitars, and so he's, can I play anything? I said, yeah, you can, whatever you want. You know, you can... 
here you got these solos. Use my Les Paul. Use any of my strats. Use anything you want. You know, anybody, I got all kinds of guitars here. And he he actually turned to me and said, "You know, if you get the right sound, it doesn't matter what you play." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's, That's right. No kidding, buddy. <laughs> I said, "You know, especially as a guitar player, you know, half the deal is how do you sound." You know, I mean, it's. We're all playing, you know, basically either Albert or BB King, anyway. So I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, what what do you sound like? You know, that's that's the whole story. So and and as a comp, uh, as a composer, you know how you set things. You know where the where the orchestration leaves off and the composition starts, or vice versa. It, it, they're so intertwined. You know, I mean, they're so intertwined. If you if you think of yourself as a composer and don't think about the orchestration, I, you ain't doing much, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to I want to throw out a few television themes that you've created, and I'd love to get some general thoughts about each one, um, such as your sure. thought, such as your, you know, just kind of some quick thoughts about how you stylized the theme or any session players that you may have used on these particular pieces or any unique or funny stories about the production or creation process. And I'm going to throw out my, my favorite. My, one, actually, it's one of my all-time favorite shows, mm-hmm. and I, I still love it today. I still watch it whenever I see reruns, and that's Magnum P.I. You know, it, it, it was really easy. I went to grammar school, junior high and high school with this guy named Tom Summer. That's right, that's right. Mm-hmm. And and so all, <laughs> you know, and Tom really, I mean, not that he isn't individual and, and he is, but he's basically an extension of what Garner did. Yeah, exactly. Great looking sure. guy. Right. It's also funnier than shit. And just got this... Great sense of humor. But he drove a better car than James Gunn. Yeah, he drove a much better car. Oh, that Firebird was pretty cool for its time, buddy. Yeah, I guess. And remember that reverse, that 180 that, that Garner was oh, yeah. you know, backing up and Absolutely. Uh, jump on the brakes and spin the car around? I mean, that was pretty cool. <laughs> so, so, you know, when Pete and I sat down, I said, you know, it's got to be guitar-oriented, and it's also got to... It's got to reflect Hawaii, and both Pete and I, you know, had a history in Hawaii. We we vacationed there together and separately. I I had actually owned property there, and still do. But so I said, you know, we got to try and, it, it, you know, it centers around Tom's personality, which is a little bit like Garner's, and but we got to make it more aggressive because it's Diamond Head, and he's got this three hundred eight that he's driving. And it's red, and it's you know, so um, you know that's. That's where that was the jumping off point. The mindset was, let's write something for Tom. Yeah, very cool. The next one uh, we want you to comment on is Hill Street Blues. Unfortunately, for a while during our partnership, Pete um, had a an electronic problem with his heart so he actually retired for like about oh maybe 14 months or something okay. and during that time that's when Bosco came to me with this Hill Street Blues project and he sent me a script I read the script I just loved it I mean I fell in love with this script 
So I didn't even, we didn't even have any discussions about what kind of music it was or what the hell it was going to be. I just waited. They shot the pilot. I went to CBS Studio Center, which was a half mile from my house in Studio City. They showed me the pilot in a big screening room with a bunch of other people, and I was just like, I mean, I was just blown away. I was just, <laughs> just amazed. I just loved it so much. I loved all the characters. I mean, I loved Ranko and Hill. Yeah. I loved Belker. I loved... You know, I just, I loved the sergeant. I loved everybody. I mean, I just, Marinero was great in it. They were all just, Travanti was great. I was in love with, you know, with with the relationship with, you know, with the prosecutor. I mean, just the whole thing was just yeah. so appealing in that pilot. So I walk out of there, and we go up to this office, and it's Bochco and the guy whose name I've forgotten who co-created it, but it was gone in the first month, um, and and Greg Hoblet, who had directed and was genius. I mean, just a genius guy. Both Botchko and, and, and Hoblet, just geniuses. So we sit down in this room, and and Stephen goes, "Well, what do you think?" And I go, "What do I think? It's fabulous. I mean, it's unbelievably strong." And he goes, "Okay, what kind of music?" And I said, "Well, Greg, there was no main title shot yet." So I said, "Greg, what's going to be on the screen when the main title?" place and at the at the time main titles were like a minute 20 you know yeah exactly right amazing how these networks (laughs) you know decimated that art film but at any rate um so greg said well you know i think i'm gonna go to detroit and i'm gonna film this the the, you know door coming up on a on a little garage and the squad car is gonna come out and gonna just kind of go through the south bronx sort of bombed out, you know, mean streets, and hopefully it'll be either snowing or raining, and it just, it'll just it just look desolate. And so Bochco said, well, what do you do for that? And I said, well, you could be really streety. It could be really funky, like, you know, Stevie Wonder funky. I mean, really, <laughs> really funky. And he just kind of looked at me with a weird look, and he says, well, what else could you do? I said, well, you could do something almost pretty. You could go yeah. completely against the picture. True. Wow. And he said, "Hey, why don't you try that?" So I said, "Okay, well, let me let me screw around." So I went home, literally five minutes away. I went into my room. I sat down at the piano, and my hands landed on E flat. You know, I was in the key E flat immediately, mm-hmm. and I started doing this stupid little thing. You know, and it took thirty minutes. And I called their office back, and hey, are you guys going to lunch? Yeah, we're just getting ready to leave. I said, can you come over here? Why? I said, I wrote something. He goes, no, 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 no. I don't want something out of a trunk that you did for something. I said, I just wrote it. Come over and listen to this. <laughs> it's new. And I swear to God, it happened exactly like this. They walk in the door. I go, glong, 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 And they're both look, looking at me like I'm a Martian. And Bashu goes, Play that again. I go, uh, 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 u
you know, that's Steve Bochco. You know, the guy oh, is just man. so he knew what he, he wanted. So sure of himself. Clued in, yeah. You know, wow. he he knew what he wanted. That's, that's amazing. Well, tell tell us about uh, Larry Carlton and how he came into the picture. Well, it was simple. You know, when I stopped being a, a session player, you know, I had this one little thing that I did, this finger picking thing, and I did some other things adequately. Um, but I had the one thing that I could do that was maybe a tiny bit special, tiny bit. But when I started producing records, I think Willie Ornelas was the first guy to turn me on to Carlton. Hmm. I think. Or somebody told me about him. Somebody said, there's this kid in Torrance, and he's ridiculous. He is ridiculous. There's just hasn't been anybody like this. He can read anything, and he can, and he plays a 335 through a Princeton, and it's just nobody sounds like this. Right, right. So I took a chance, and, you know, I had him up. He was 17. Jeez. And he came in. And and now, you know, I'd already done the Andy Williams show. I'm already a made guy. I've got a bunch of stuff going on. You know, you know I'm pretty busy as a producer and blah, blah, blah. This kid comes in and just absolutely sweet, kind, doesn't say a word, yeah. just plays his ass off. Yeah. And you could write so specifically for him for 12 bars and then draw a line and put a you know, chord symbols up there, and you never knew where you stopped and he took over. He just made everything sound like him. Jeez. And so we were dear friends, and and when I wrote Hill Street, you know, I thought, God, it really, really needs something different. So I said, I called him up and I said, hey, Larry, I want to play a piece of music. I said, a theme for a new show. Okay, so I go up and I, I play this to him, and he goes, oh, that's good, that's really good. I said, want to play guitar on it? He said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, I just got this new Korg synthesizer. It's it's mono. It'll, I mean, it'll only, uh, uh, you know, it, it'll only play one note at a time, but I could play these little fills in there. And it's sort of on a flute setting. I said, what? So he starts to play. I go, oh, it's perfect. Perfect. Wow. So we put we put that guitar on it, and, you know, and then when it came time to for it to be a record, you know, I said, Larry, let's share credit, you know, let it say, you know, Mike Post featuring Larry Carlton. And I think that was his first Grammy. Yeah. Look at that. That's amazing. You know, one more, I want to throw out one more uh, theme that you've done that was okay. obviously very popular. And this one also was one that crossed over into, uh, you know, a major hit mm -hmm. as well. And it got a lot of airplay as well. And that's, the, of course, the theme from The Greatest American Hero, Joey Scarberry. Again, Cannell, you know, at his best. Um, Cannell was a huge Beach Boy fan. Uh -huh. I mean, huge. And he, he's so funny. He's such a good guy, you know. And he, he, he's one of the great losses of my life is that, 
is that he passed away a year and a half ago, and it just what a good guy, just what a what a wonderful person. But at any rate, he, you know, when he called me about, he said, I got, he said, I got this idea. They want me to do Superman. He said, but I, I want to, he said, I can't do it without making it funny. He said, you know, Christ, I, I can't compete with a movie, you know. He said, so I, he said, this guy's going to get visited by a, by a spaceship. He's going to get a suit that allows him to fly, uh, but he's going to lose the directions. So he, he flies <laughs> fucked up all the time. I went, oh, God, oh, my, he can't. You know, so I'm already laughing, you know. And and um, he sends me a script. The script's funny as hell. It just makes you laugh out loud. So then I call him back and I go, okay, what do you want us to do? And he goes, well, he said, can you, you know, can you do a Beach Boy thing? I go, no, no. He goes, well, it's California, can't you? I said, no, we already did that. And we did a show called Richie Brockleman, Private Eye. And I said, we already did that, Ken. We're not doing that again. <laughs> he goes, okay. Um, I said, uh, you know, we could, if, if, if we use Stephen Geyer, who was a, a, a songwriting friend of mine, a, a great lyricist, I said, if we use Stephen Geyer, I said, we could, we could, I'm sure he'd come up with a lyric that would, would make an analogy between, you know, some reference to the show and, and to what happens to this teacher who's visited by Martians, you know, yeah. and and either love or something like that. He'll put something together good in a lyric. And I said, yeah. so it should be a song. And he goes, and Cannell said, okay. He said, could Scarberry sing it? Because he knew Joey, and he knew that I, I had produced some records on Joey. And I said, hell yeah, he's the perfect voice. You know, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. that's how that happened. That's Very neat. cool. Very cool. You know, Mike, you've uh, you've mentioned a couple of things uh, regarding technology. Your first Moog that you had, and of course the the monophonic uh, Korg that you uh, work with Larry on yep. on uh, on Hill Street. And yep. uh, I mean, during your career, you've witnessed probably an amazing evolution of sound design technology, and you know, especially music with synths, and from your upright, you know, spinets all the way to to your Moog. And you know, yep. how how have you embraced that technology over the years? And and uh, you know, how how do you you use it you know what's your philosophy in regarding new technology and sounds well i'll, I'll be honest with you it, it again you know so fortunate because if i had been maybe 10 years older the guys that are 10 years older than me didn't embrace it so well pete really didn't like it much really pete pete actually you know went god i don't know i did i just you know it just rubbed him the wrong way and I think my age, and because I was, you know, was a guitar player, so used to, you know, altering the acoustic sound of something, you know, I mean, my first fuzz tone was like, you know, almost as important as the first kiss, you know, I mean, it's like, holy shit, I don't have to turn the thing up to break it up, you know, I mean, perfect. I can actually get some sustain out of the B string and the E string. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I was used to to that part of it. I was also used to to using technology as a producer, you know, in the studio. You know, when it really started to change for me was on Doogie Howser. Okay. Uh, Because I I looked at that show and I thought, I really can do this show all myself. Right. That's interesting. You know, I can really... And and then then I found a way to not be resentful that I couldn't do the thing that I thought that I maybe did better than almost everything else, which was conduct. 
you know, I, I, I miss the orchestra. I miss conducting. I felt like I was really good at it, you know. But the truth of the matter is, in television, budget crunch met technology, yeah. and it just didn't make any sense anymore. It became a black box business. Right. So if if you your choices are small, you either retire, yeah, and think about the way it used to be, or you embrace it and find a way not to be resentful. And I just, honest to God, it it, it I, you know I feel bad for all the musicians that are out of work. I feel bad for people that pass themselves off as composers and musicians when they really aren't, when they're really sound designers. That's Mm -hmm. a different gig. That's a different deal. I feel feel bad for some children who don't or haven't been educated enough to know the difference between the way an orchestra sounds and a way a bunch of, you know, a bunch of samples sound. That's true, yeah. But on the other hand, in terms of scoring motion pictures or television, who are our ancestors? Well, our ancestors played in the silent movie houses on pianos or organs, right. looked at the picture, and played music to it. Yeah, that's right. Now, what do I do? Well, right. I look at the picture and play music to it. Right, exactly. I mean, it's no different. You <laughs> that's know, that's, right. That's beautiful. That's neat. You know, it's it, it's a blessing to be able to still, after 40 years on television, you know, to still have somebody bring you something and get excited about doing it. I mean, you know, I actually still, honestly, I'm not bullshitting, I still really love going to work. I love yeah. making music. That's awesome. Well, speaking of that, tell me right now, what, what kinds of projects are you working on now? You know, I'm doing really good stuff. I'm still doing uh, Law and Order Special Victims, which I still like as a show. Yeah, uh-huh. I still find a, a different way to do most of it. Um, I'm working on a, a, a new little half-hour show called Rob with Rob Schneider. Oh, yeah, it looks yeah. like it's going to make it. It just premiered, That's right? a fun thing to do because I'm doing, you know, I'm sort of going back to my little white boy Vato thing. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> that's true, you know. I'm, I'm an essay from the Valley, man. There you, you know, go. Like, You're a Vato. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you got, I grew up, you know, that whole Richie Valens, you know, sure. Van Eyes little, you know, <laughs> that that thing you know mm-hmm. so yeah. uh i can access that and and it's a fun show and and i'm enjoying doing that i'm doing um you know little things there's a band up in in newfoundland in st john's newfoundland called great big c that has a lead singer uh, named alan doyle and i've just written a couple songs with him and produced a couple things for his solo album and I don't know how you make money from records anymore or whatever they're <laughs> going to call them from recorded music, but I don't give a shit. I never did this for money in the first place. <laughs> no, I really, I honestly, God, I'm I'm proud of a couple of things. And, and the thing I'm probably most proud of is that neither in my partnership with Pete Carpenter nor as a composer on my own after Pete died, I, I've never ghosted any music. Nobody's ever written any music and I put my name on it, you know, I, I just don't do that. Uh, anybody that helped us out in the, when we had 10 shows got credit. Everybody got their name on the cue sheet, you know, at least partial credit if we wrote the theme or something. And um, and I'm also really, really proud that I, I can honestly say I've never made a musical decision based on money. You know, I got, That's great. 
I got whatever I am well off or you know comfortable or whatever you call it by by just worrying about the music you know right. let the money take care of itself that's later, cool you know, that's neat do the music oh, that's great that's fantastic and and you know this has been a, a a wonderful hour and 20 or 15 minutes, and, and it's a conversation that I've wanted to have, have for a long time because Absolutely. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I, you know, it, those themes have, have stuck with me and probably stuck with millions of people for you know, the last 30 years, or 35 years plus, and it's just been a real pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, uh, you know, really, thanks, you guys. I, 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 I like what you guys are doing. And it, Thank you. you know, it, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I hope, you know, I hope somebody out there gets something out of it, you know. Oh, this is a lot of insightful information. Some of the questions that I'm sure a lot of our audience has been wanting to ask you personally for a long, long time. And, and this was just a great hour. Thank and you. And I also wanted to uh, thank uh, our mutual friend, Jeff Gerson, for connecting us to you. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's the greatest, still still a dear friend of mine and a yeah. uh, wonderful musician. And uh, it's a uh, it's, he's 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 the greatest. I'm glad he's a friend of yours because he's sure a friend of mine. Yeah. That's great, Mike. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Uh, no sweat, guys. Nice talking to you. All right, take care. Bye bye. Special thanks to Mike Post for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, and Mikhail Ingstrom, for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For more information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.